Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers. 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Vizell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we're back with number 49 on AFI's top 100 list of films with 1916's Intolerance. Intolerance. We mentioned a little bit about this on the last episode, sort of highlighting or previewing this film and our our watching, our viewing of it. But we know that this director, Griffin, D.W. Griffin, right? I thought it was Griffith. Griffith, D.W. Griffith, D.W. Griffith. Some sort of name. (laughs) He did Birth of a Nation. Yeah, he's not a good person. He did Birth of a Nation in 1915. Yes. So one year before this film. One year. Now, a lot of people have speculated, and I'm not sure if this is confirmed. I couldn't find anyone that said, like, definitively Griffith said this. But a lot of people thought this was his sort of atonement for Birth of a Nation. Yes, you know, I read the same thing, but I also read that he explicitly said that this was not, like, or maybe not, he said something along the lines of, you know, this was about how intolerant people were of his film. Okay, so he went the megalomaniac way as opposed to the contrite way. Right, and because because I read that you know that that's a lot. There's all this speculation that this is like his apology, his atonement, whatever. Um, but it seems as though there are I don't know if there are inter- interviews or documents. There's some some sort of something that said uh, that he was like, no, this is to show how intolerance like how intolerant people were of my last film. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it, he's not a good guy. <laughs> and we'll have plenty of time to talk about this. But first, Ethan, I feel like we need a plot synopsis. All right, well, what plot there is, here we are. Um, Intolerance tells us four interweaving stories. The story of Belshazzar of Babylon and Cyrus the Great of Persia. This story documents the fall of Babylon due to the conflict between two rival religions. Uh, It tells us a portion of the story of the crucifixion, Jesus. Uh, It tells us the story of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where a bunch of French Catholics uh, conspired to murder a group of French Protestants, and then they, of course, do it. And a modern, quote-unquote, 1916 modern, story um, of characters that we know as The Boy and The Dear One. These are pretty bad names. The boy and the dear one are children of factory workers. The owner of the factory, his name is Jenkins. He's coerced into supporting his sister's Reformation charities. Um, To do this, he docks the wages of his workers, and they have a strike. The strike, though, is met with swift and violent retaliation. Uh, And the boy and the dear one are forced to head to the nearby city for work. The boy's father dies, uh, and clearly the dear one's father no longer has a job. The boy falls into crime. The dear one is left alone when her father dies and slips into poverty. Uh, As you might expect, the two uh, hook up. They get married. uh, And the boy decides to leave his life of crime. However, leaving the mob is not as easy as joining the mob. And he's framed by his mob boss and sent to jail. Uh, Shortly after, the dear one has a child, presumably his, and she's forced to give it up when she's mistaken for a drunk by the visiting Reformation women, uh, the same ones that used Jenkins' money. Uh, The boy's old mob boss offers to retrieve the child, apparently in some shady way, uh, 
And then he attempts to rape the dear one, uh, because he's clearly not a good character. Meanwhile, his mistress has followed him, and she plans to kill him with the gun. The boy returned to his boss when he quit. Um, The boy bursts in, fights the boss. The mistress, who is snuck around the building on the outside, shoots the boss through the window. The boy is framed for the murder after she tosses the gun back into the room. And uh, at the last moment, with the help of a detective of some sort, the dear one extracts a killer confession from the mistress and they race to save her husband with the help of the governor uh and they do save him from hanging by the neck until dead 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 in the nick of time that sounds like plenty of plot i don't know why you said this movie was light on plot it had four plots yeah, but the other the other plots are barely plots. There are people... But they're massive. They're the crucifixion of Christ. They're the fall of Babylon by Cyrus the Great. And the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre of the... I think it's... Is that how you say Huguenots? Is that how you say it? I have no idea how to say it. I So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> now, granted, the crucifixion of Christ and the massacre are really only maybe five minutes each in film time it felt felt like to me yeah they're not very long and and i will put it this way too the the babylon scenes while there is a bit of a story with the 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 mountain girl who is uncouth and cannot be married and falls in love with i guess bel chazar i don't it's very hard to tell who's who yeah she falls in love with belhazar or belshazzar i've heard a couple pronunciations of that name we're gonna call him Bell, um, or at least I'm going to. Well, he's a he's a pre- he has a priest of Bell, right? That's oh. another character. So maybe that's a little misleading, but yeah, he, Bell Bell Hayes Bell Hayes. Yeah, there's there's a little sort of a love story there. There's also the what's the musical man's name again? The the rap is it the rhapsody or the rhapsode? I don't know. Babylon is just a big bunch of fight scenes and a bunch of like harem scenes, and you know it's just spectacle, spectacle, spectacle. It doesn't really the story doesn't matter. We're gonna tackle Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers next week on our Patreon bonus episodes. We are, and that Babylon siege reminded me so much of Helm's Deep with the siege towers and everyone fighting. I agree. It's quite similar. I also wanted to talk about the fact that the reason Ethan and I are having so many issues with pronunciation is, of course, it's a silent film. Silent film. We get text on the screen, but that's all we get. And we are forced to... Well, the lovely piano music, of course. (laughs) Actually, you know, of the piano music we've heard in the past films on this list, right, the previous 50 films we've, we've seen... This is probably the better version of silent film piano tune. You think so? I I would disagree. I think the uh, the last Charlie Chaplin film we watched had better piano work. The Gold Rush film? Yes, Gold Rush. I just felt like this had a lot more variation than what you typically find in a long silent film, which, I mean, we've only seen a couple, but very few of them were much longer than an hour and a half. Yeah, and this one, I believe that the version you and I watched was only about two hours, but according to the internet, there are various cuts that range anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours. So the version we watched on Amazon, which was included with Prime, actually said it was three hours and 17 minutes long, 
but when you play it, of course, it's only two hours and three minutes. So I don't sure, I'm not sure what that discrepancy was about. They're probably scraping that data from somewhere else. But the reason why there's such a difference in time signature for these films, well, because it was cut into several different films because it was a was a flop in its time. Yeah. So he broke it into two different films at one point and he had different running cuts. And I guess he was also notorious for just doing different cuts on his own anyway. So you've got yes. a bunch of these versions floating around, but you and I watched the same one and the two hours felt, felt like a tight two hours for the plot therein. That I, I felt like this movie never ended. Really? You, <laughs> yes. So, well, I guess... What I should say first is that I do not have any audio for a pivotal scene because, as we just discussed, <laughs> it's piano it's music, silent. even though I, I think it's slightly better piano music and Ethan disagrees. But we don't really, there's no real point in us blowing them up. But I will say that what really sold this movie to me was actually the last 20 minutes. Yeah, the la- I think the last 20 minutes are perhaps the most uh, visually interesting and uh, in terms of plot you know quite interesting in comparison to the rest of the film i think the first two-thirds of the film are these plot lines circling the drain Mm -hmm. and the last 20 minutes now we're right there right we're in the drain all these plot lines are thrown together and we're getting five second ten second scenes flitting between plot 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 and so Mm -hmm. i was thinking that this film is visually tense at that point i think it does a great job of Resolving these storylines and making you wonder, of course, withholding the modern plot is most relevant for the contemporary viewer last. And so you see the massacre, you see the crucifixion of Christ, you see the fall of Babylon. You say, oh boy, things are not going well. And then, of right. course, the boy is saved at the last moment, meaning that we do have a chance or humanity has made progress. Maybe we are going to do something about intolerance. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that the the last... 15 minutes uh 15 20 minutes feel pretty uh modern i guess in the cinematography that does you you can see uh the prefiguration of a lot of things that we'll get to later i've been wondering what do you think this movie's about well you know i really think that this movie does make a case against hypocrisy and i guess in intolerance i mean in the most didactic way of course um, intolerance, right? It blames th- that uh, for all of the ills of society, war, crime, punishment, suffering, all of these sorts of things. Um, and in that way, I think it's a pretty didactic story, right? You know, we should be tolerant and helpful of other people is sort of what it says. Um, the big irony, of course, is that D.W. Griffith is a terrible garbage human being who... Uh, really helped to set a fire underneath the uh or set a fire in the hearts of racists throughout America uh essentially re because of his film uh you know the Ku Klux Klan comes back uh you know he's a terrible awful racist who rewrites the story of the civil war as uh you know the war of northern aggression and you know the so because of him and because of uh the birth of a nation there are ideas in our national psyche as Americans that, you know, grow directly out of that, right? Uh, he foments modern racism in a lot of ways, you know, uh, in, in the 20th century. 
the KKK comes back because of him. He glorifies the KKK as the saviors of the of America. So for him to make a film where you know, it basically says at the end, you know, we should be good to each other and love will prevail, and you know, don't uh, do don't do bad things like you know, abuse your workers and you know, there's problems with the criminal justice system and blah, blah, blah. It all is just so undercut for me by the fact that he's a terrible, awful racist who's responsible for, you know, years and years and years of awful racism and violence and death and murder, you know? I think most of that's understood by people who are aware of this director, who are aware of Birth of a Nation. I feel like it was Grad school 101 for me in my race class was let's talk about birth of a nation and everything that is a problem with it and something we alluded to two yeah. weeks ago in a previous episode. But yeah, I have a sort of radical thesis for you I'd like to try out. All right. Throw it at me. So by the regenerative power of sex, mankind, not humanity, can be redeemed. All of our protagonists are aggressive brutes that require corrective love to enjoy virtue. Think of the boy the only reason he marries the dear one is he's going to go in and, well, it's, it's ostensibly just kiss her goodnight, but, you know, in reality. <laughs> yeah. He says, none of that goodnight stuff. I always see my girls to bed or home or something. Like that. It was like yeah, the implication like was not very veiled at all. And then he's like sexually frustrated. And then he says, well, what if we got married? And she's like, yeah, then we could do all the stuff. And it definitely is his kid. So clearly they've had procreative sex. And that puts him on the straight and narrow, as the title cards indicate to us. Right. And the Rhapsode or the Rhapsody is also being led by the Mountain Girl, in this case, to do something good, right? To reveal, which, you know, it's a little complicated. The Fall of Babylon, I'm not really sure where the director or the story or the film itself felt about it. It was like the Fall of Babylon was a bad thing, but there's a lot of evidence that Cyrus was actually, you know, really... Uh, kind of a nice guy to the Jewish people. And so I, I really couldn't follow what I was supposed to feel about the fall of Babylon. Well, I think the fall of Babylon in the film, you know, Babylon is, is destined to fall because uh, they're uh, the sexual improprieties of all of these people. I mean, we get all those harem shots and things like that. The The degeneration of the society has led them to this, this inevitable end. I think. But it's once Belhazer selects one of his, they call them dancing girls, but it's clearly a harem, to be his beloved princess, that's when that kingdom is, is supposed to be at its most redeeming. Mm-hmm. And of course, the mountain girl also is giving her life or trying her hardest to to save who she loves, which is also Belhazer. And then one more interesting at the end, do you remember uh, Belhazer's bodyguard? Some it's like his name is Two Swords. Yeah, his name is Two Swords. He only ever has one sword. <laughs> but at the very end, when it's clear that Babylon will fall and Belhazer will die, Two Swords steps up, kisses Belhazer straight on the mouth, and then goes off to fight like a Thermopylian sort of three hundred death. Oh, I I missed that kiss. I didn't see that. Man, it was. I think it was the best part of the film. Yeah, Ooh. it was. It's just like the most interesting plot line and the most epic of confrontations on, on top of this like homoerotic relationship that's not even veiled at all. It's it's very interesting. You had a very different experience watching this than I did. The to me the uh, 
the Babylon stuff was fairly incomprehensible, mainly because I couldn't tell who the fuck was who. <laughs> and so it just seemed to me to be just sort of overblown spectacle, but you were clearly able to follow it uh, in a way that made it a lot more uh, interesting and perhaps um, subversive. There is a lot of stuff in those Babylon segments that I thought, man, this would make a really good modern film. If someone redid this, they would have a lot to say about this. Certainly not the exact premise of the four interweaving plots in the way that Griffith does it, but just the events of of Babylon, Cyrus the Great, and his mm-hmm. taking of the city. And you know, I'm not exactly sure whether or not there was nefarious means to get entrance to the city the, the second time after the assault. But in any case, it, it seemed particularly interesting to me. And maybe I was connecting it a lot to the Lord of the Rings, or maybe I just thought it was the most well-done piece of them. But I thought the Babylon part really shined for me. Uh, a less radical thesis that I have, I just was just noticing how how much blatant male sexual aggression was then converted into something generative through women of the plot kind of guiding these brutes because that's what they are really beyond that i think a much less uh sort of radical thesis to this is that you know this is an anti-war film right it's 1916 we're in world Mm -hmm. war one already one of the final shots they have is men fighting on a modern battlefield with cannons Mm -hmm. and people with bayonets and barbed wire and there's a whole bunch of angels and stuff that are supposed to get them to lay down the arms which I'm sure it was an incredible sight to see in 1916, the effects mm-hmm. they were using. Not as impressive for us, but still impactful, I think. Yeah, uh, and I think it is interesting that at least in the modern story, the the real villains, uh, the, the gender politics are very strange in this film because the real villains of the modern story, the, the, the 1914 story, the villains are the, are the reformer women, the spinsters. This is actually something that I think fits part and parcel into my argument about this sexual regeneration because there's actually a title card or a text card or whatever you want to call it that at one point says when these women have lost the ability to get a man. Yeah, they turn to reform and then it shows a bunch of old and ugly women. Yeah, I might actually have the quote here. But yeah, but I mean, it is essentially that's what the, what it says, you know, when they when they no longer can attract a man. It might even be verbatim that when they, when women can no longer attract a man, their eyes turn to reform or something like that. And so the the reformers are made out to be villains. It's it's strange, and and it, it does perhaps fit with your idea of this generative masculine act in that the they're spinsters, right? They're not going to get married to a man, and so what they do is corrupt other men it's it's weird it's strange yeah the line is when women cease to attract men they often turn to reform as a second choice and this is as they're looking at these people who are supposed to be ugly women looking at a brothel being tossed right that all these these prostitutes are being thrown out and so i think there is this weird interplay between sexual identity and sexual currency and the way in which that actually institutes change, right? Because the boy is on this life of crime until the dear one's sexuality corrects him. Yeah. And just like the mountain girl is being led by her sexual attraction to Belhazer, she is also leading the Rhapsode or the Rhapsody, however you want to call him, with her sexual 
currency. Mm-hmm. And the boss of the boy, the musketeer of the slums, which I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. He uh, is, <laughs> you know, a sexual brute trying to take the dear one. And what undoes him is that he's also slighted. I think she's called the one without friends or the friendless one, his mistress. Yeah, his mistress. And so she kills him as a result. So all this, like all the major plots in the modern plot, well, and actually in all of them, except the, the crucifixion, I suppose, are bound up in this idea of sexual currency, which I just found that was sort of an interesting through line. I didn't really know what to make of it, so I just wanted to throw it out here, see what you made of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I I definitely noticed at least elements of that, and and I don't know that there's a clear and coherent final answer. Uh, You know, I mean, the, the big binding connector of all these different eras is that weird eternal motherhood figure who's rocking the cradle, so yeah. there is something about motherhood, right? And that, you know, and it does end with this idea of like love can tame, you know, the all of the ills of society. So there is and this something is procreative love too, you know, it's yeah. not inconsequential that it's a baby being rocked. Right. So yeah, I th- I think that I'm I'm on board with a, a good portion of that. I still think that it's very hard to watch this even with that sort of a thesis. Uh, and say you know, and and laud Griffith in any way. Oh no, well I'm just saying he's got a lot of issues with sexuality. Certainly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying you're lauding him, but yeah, I mean, I. But I think you're right. There's definitely that going on there. There's also a couple lines from a poem that are quoted, and they're actually from Oscar Wilde, which is another very interesting, interesting choice when you're thinking about sexual politics and sexual currency. Yeah, that is weird. Maybe we should put a moratorium on the sex talk for a little bit, Ethan, and maybe turn to our three questions. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Do you care about this film? It's hard to say yes for the sort of political reasons I've already mentioned. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it does appear that this film is influential in a serious way in terms of craft. So I'm going to give it a hard sort of. Well, Charlie Chaplin said we owe the entire industry to Griffith in this film. Yeah, I don't Charlie, know about Charlie that. Charlie Chaplin's incapable of lying. I, mean, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but man can't lie. Right. I think this is a very modern film. We definitely see the beginnings of modern cinematography yes, and modern, cinema. you know, plot narrative in a film particularly. Yeah, I think what this film does uh, in terms of its craft is is important. It's a silent film, and it looks like a modern film if you take away all the you know, poor lighting and everything that has to be done because it's on film and we don't really have the technology. But the fact that it's both a silent film and approximates or shares a lot of elements with a modern film is kind of wild to me. Yeah, and, and you can see a lot of that, especially near the end of the film. Um the way the the way shots are framed, the way th- the cuts are happening, the use the use of close ups, um, the use of moving camera on the crane and things like that uh, are are very modern looking, or at least proto modern, right? Like we can see this. I guess we're bleeding into the second question, but we we can see this happening in in other films, right? Not to mention the first recorded use of chariot pigeons of what chariot pigeons oh yes the chariot pigeons and of course the puppy pack uh in the first f- 
few minutes of the uh, film, which, of course, for those of our uh, listeners who do not know, the puppy pack is, of course, a knapsack filled with puppies that you wear around your waist. Well, that the effeminate prince wears around his waist. Not my words, the movie's words. The He's movie's the words. Prince. The effeminate prince. And of course, chariot pigeons are literally small pigeons that pull a chariot, which when the mountain girl dies, the frame sort of opens up and you see the chariot pigeons walk over, which was a strange addition to the scene for me because it's kind of somber that the mountain girl has died and then the chariot pigeons walk over i don't know ethan add chariot pigeons to any scene it makes it better automatically there are two pigeons bound to the teeniest tiny chariot that's used to deliver message they're pigeons they can fly but no they make them pull a chariot they make them pull a tiny chariot uh and what would have been even better is if a tiny hamster was in the chariot directing the pigeons we can just hope for the future <laughs> we can just solve this intolerance problem then we'll have hamsters guiding chariot pigeons but the until then our second question ethan as you've already mentioned we've sort of bled right into this which i think as just sort of an organizing principle maybe we should start doing the second question first because the way we answer or what we justify do we care about this film yes. is often you know what do we owe to it oh no i think you're right i think that it may be time to reverse the order here because we seem to do this every episode right yeah so yeah anyway let's let's continue i think so much modern cinematography angles you mentioned the close-ups it was apparently unheard of in 1915 1916 to do any kind of close-up on a main character during action within a film interesting it's something i think i certainly took for granted in my viewing of this film, I'm not sure if, if you experienced the same thing or not, but it just sort of said, yeah, that's what you do. That's how you, that's how you do a film. But I think this movie is very deceptive for how much we owe to it because it looks so modern in technique, if not, of course, its actual production due to technological constraints and the fact that it's mm-hmm. a silent film. It does in so many ways look like, especially near the end, when things really start to pick up. I mean, it does look like a proto the modern day film i mean you have a you have the mountain girl running on the chariot and then you have a train in the next scene and then you have christ being crucified it's just all these images being thrown together and it just becomes that chaotic moment toward the end like i think that circling the drain metaphor i think this is everything going down the drain at the same time yeah and i mean you can see this i know we use star wars quite often as a, a metric um but this is you know the the sort of star wars ending of a film where there are there are four different plot points that all come together you have two characters fighting on a planet you have a big battle then you have a space battle and we jump between you know what i mean we see this in a lot of action movies right the sort of threads come together uh, of all these related things and even though these threads are broken by time and and distance uh, as each thread escalates, like you said, the chariot girl is running and the uh, uh, the dear one is in the car chasing the train and Christ is getting crucified and we're jumping. Boom, 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 boom. Um, so, so yeah, that's it, that's really interesting to see early versions of, of this that we see in films often now. Which I think very naturally leads us to our third and final question. Does this film hold up? And I, I think the the answer is, uh, in some ways, yeah. In some ways, it, it really does. Um, on the other hand, it, it is hard to... I mean, I can barely imagine a, a, a real modern audience today going and sitting through this. 
Well, that's interesting because in 2016, 100 years anniversary, they did release this again in theaters, and apparently people liked it. It was well-received. Interesting. I mean, I, I can't imagine asking my students to watch this film. They would tear their eyes out. Um, on the other hand, like we've talked about, there are shots in here that look modern. Um, some of them le- less so, but, you know, many of them quite astute, I think. Yeah, I, I think this film actually holds up fairly well. I had a very different experience viewing this than you did, it seems. but <laughs> It does, yeah. I actually was able to follow the action, and I thought it was interesting, and I thought it was good. And I was always kind of on the edge of my seat thinking, well, what's going to happen? Because though I knew Babylon was going to fall, I didn't know how that was going to relate to the other plots. You know, barring the crucifixion of Christ, I thought that was, you know, fairly obvious, of course. But Mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, and certainly the original story the fictive aspect of this plot the modern story i didn't know what was going to happen with that i i didn't know this was going to end on a completely down note or a completely optimistic one and it obviously ends with a very optimistic one but the fact mm-hmm. that it's able to keep me in between those two poles i thought was very well done yeah well ethan i think that's going to cover it for this episode we of course will return next week as we've already mentioned on our super secret bonus content edition on patreon.com for all the patrons of the arts they go to patreon.com slash spoilers cast they can donate five dollars a month to listen to twice the content they're currently getting if they're not a supporter through patreon (gasps) twice the content and as we mentioned we'll be watching the lord of the rings the two towers another great film another great lord of the rings and then A week after that, so two weeks from now, we'll be back on the canon list, the AFI Top 100, with number 48, Rear Window. Rear Window. Hitchcock film. Hitchcock, number two. Should be better than the last one. I wasn't very positive on that one, but we'll just have to see when we get there. So, until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.